0: In a nutshell, let me just explain what we believe as Christians. Um, firstly, we believe that mankind was created by God to know him, to know God personally. That is like our destiny. That is everyone's purpose in life. But we've been separated by God uh, from God by our selfishness and our sin. Uh, Isaiah 59 says, Your iniquities or your sin have separated you from your God. And holiness and evil can't mix a bit like oil and water. And therefore we're left with this huge chasm between us and God. And the consequences of our rebellion against God are that we are judged for that rebellion and we die a death spiritually. So we're far from him. And no amount of really good works or really trying to be good can ever earn back that broken relationship. And we miss out on the life that we have been made for. However, Jesus, God's own son, is sent to bridge the gap. And through his death, he restores us back to God. 1 Peter 3 verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Does it feel like it's getting dark in here? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and lastly by trusting in God we are reconnected to him and we can use uh, by trusting in the cross uh, we can know God like none of you are smiling but that is the good news that we believe as Christians and in life every single one of us needs to decide like which side we're on which side are you on right now And that is the most important question in life. And to help us try and uh, answer that question, we often read the Bible. The Bible is God's main way of speaking to us. And we study it every time we gather together on a Sunday. And today we uh, we begin a brand new series looking at the book of Romans. And we're going to read the first 17 verses together. So if you've got a Bible, please do open it up uh, because we're going to spend the morning uh, in these 17 verses. It's going to be on the screen behind me in just a moment, uh, but let me read as we get going. So Romans 1 verse 17, uh, sorry, Romans 1 verse 1 through to verse 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles, all the people that weren't Jews, to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers, and at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. I long to see you so that uh, I might impart some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is that you and I might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I had among other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. And that is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus to transform our world, transform our lives. Thank you that, Jesus, you are both our king and our friend. Please use this time to unlock this wonderful letter so that we might understand and share your message of hope with the world. Amen. This letter that you've got in your hands here is, has made a huge impact on people through the centuries. Uh, God's used it to sort of change the lives of some real heavy hit, hitters in church history, people like Luther and Calvin, and it's wonderful, it's rich, but you can tell just from reading those first 17 verses, it's dense, it's complicated. <laughs> And maybe, uh, maybe because we are a little bit scared of it, uh, a lot of us wish we really understood Romans, but many of us don't actually really spend much time in it. It can feel a bit like uh, the Mount Everest or the Himalayas when it compares to other books in the Bible. And, uh, I guess my plea for us today is that let's not miss out on the gold that can be found in this letter. Um, I actually, um, quite a number of years ago, had a similar experience to what I'm talking about now with cricket. Does anyone here not understand the rules of cricket? Like, yeah, there's, you, wow, that is quite scary, actually, how many people just don't understand cricket. So, um, For years, I was told that this is the most amazing game that takes only five whole days to play. And I would watch it and just not understand the point of it. And uh, I couldn't understand how a game could go on for that long and still end up in a draw at the end of it. And then there was a whole language that you have to learn and know to really engage in it. Things like googly's and an agricultural shot, a coffin, a daisy cutter, a night watchman, a silly mid-on, golden ducks, swing bowling. What on earth are people talking about when they use those terms? As a sport lover, I really wanted to like cricket, but I just couldn't do it until... At university, I lived with the university cricket captain for two years, and I really didn't have any choice, but he explained the rules to me. He unpacked all the terms. He explained how the impact of weather conditions, the pitch, the age and shine of the ball, the different type of bowlers, and the greats of the game. He took me to some nets, and he actually fired up a a bowling machine and fired balls at me at 90 miles an hour just so I could have a taste of what it's like to play. And somehow, I ended up quite enjoying it. And in fact, so much so that Tom and I went to Headingley just recently to watch our first England match together. And granted, all we did really was eat a lot of food. But um, I I feel I appreciate cricket in a new way. And my hope today is to do for you with Romans what my friend did with me and cricket. So, I'm here to give you some keys which will unlock the rest of the letter. I'm going to explain the main players and the key terms, and I hope it grows a passion for this letter. Everyone up for that? Yes. Excellent. So, um, before I start, let's watch this short video together that's going to give some background to why the letter was written. Wasn't that good? So, you've got to listen to me now. I'm sorry about that. But uh, um, So, what we're going to do is, I'm going to give you some sort of the key people that we need uh, to understand this letter. And first up, we're going to start with the author of the letter, Paul. He introduces himself in Romans 1, verse 1, using three terms. Let's look at verse 1 together. Paul. The servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. So the first term is servant or some translations have slave, others have bondservant. Now it's quite unusual to call yourself a servant or a slave. But what Paul has in mind is the idea of a bondservant from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, in special times, you're allowed to let your slaves go free. However, if they love the family, if they love working for you, if they enjoyed the way that they were treated, and they had this strong connection to their master, then they could choose to stay freely as bondservants. And they were adopted into the family. And they had this really cool way of demonstrating the fact that you became a bond servant. Does anyone know what they used to do? Yeah, stick a nail through the earlobe. So they'd stand you up against a wooden door and get a nail and bang it through your earlobe. So I would think that would leave them with second thoughts knowing they had to go through that. And I presume they were allowed to get down at some point from the door. But that's how it was shown. And so what Paul is saying is that his master is Jesus and he relates to him in the same way. So freely he chooses to devote his life in the service of the master. Jesus never forces anyone to have to have him as master. It's always a choice. And incredibly, if you're a Christian here today, we squirm and we often fight his leadership in our lives However, it doesn 't make sense when you think who the master is he 's the most wonderful, compassionate, powerful friend you could ever know. You know it actually reminds me of when my kids were smaller and, and sometimes present day where they rebel against my godly rule as father, and they say things like, "Who put you in charge and you 've got no right to speak to me like that," and "Who put you in charge?" and all of that and what they forget is that I want the best for them. And God's given me authority as dad to bring them up so that they know him and that they love others. It's great that they're here today to hear that. (laughs) And so the question is, can you describe yourself as a servant or as a bond slave of Christ? Would you think of that in those terms? Secondly, Paul says he's an apostle. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. An apostle is someone that's been sent to establish God's kingdom. In one sense, all of us are called to do that. But um, more specifically, Paul would pioneer into new areas and plant new churches and then strengthen those churches. He did that across the Mediterranean world, especially with people that weren't Jews, the, the Gentiles. And it was his spiritual gift, and he actually refers to that gift in in Romans 1, verses 11 and 12. He says, I long to see you so that I might impart some spiritual gift to you to make you strong. That is, that you and I might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. And wonderfully, all of us in the room have got gifts and abilities that have been given by God. And in fact, we believe that God gathers a diverse family together to use their gifts to serve one another. So you're not just a random person unable to serve, but there is a unique call on your life, on each of your lives. And it's crucial you find your sweet spot. You find that mixture of what you're passionate about and what God has gifted you in and the need in this church family. Join a serving team. Uh, Join a mission group. Ask your friends, what am I good at? What could I be doing? Get involved. Get giving. Get playing your part. So Paul is slave, he's apostle, and thirdly, he's set apart. He says, I'm set apart for the gospel of God. Paul's life was so radically turned around by God that he viewed his life as different. He was set apart for sharing the good news or the gospel of God. Now, a good question to ask is, why was he prepared to live so radically? Well, his story speaks for itself. Paul was a Jewish Jewish teacher who hated the way, or what later became known as Christians. He hated Christians. And his job was to travel from town to town, find out who these Christians were, and have them imprisoned, or in some cases, killed for their faith, as we see in Acts 7 with Stephen. And it's only on a dusty road on his way to arrest some believers that he's confronted by the risen Lord Jesus. Acts 9 says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied and as Saul, who becomes Paul, recovers, Jesus sets him apart for this mission to tell the world about him through planting churches. Think about it, an incredible turnaround. Someone who was a murderer, who hated Christians, became this Jesus follower. I don't know what your story is like if you've done that journey from this so that I sometimes spend time thinking about where I would be in this life if Jesus hadn't revealed himself to me. Um, if I'm really honest, what I see is a series of broken relationships. I see my issues such as fear uh, robbing me of enjoying life. I see hurt and pain because I had a track record before I became a Christian of hurting people and causing pain. And I see that that would have just been magnified as I got older and probably more bitter uh, as life went on. I'm so grateful that Jesus found me, that Jesus has transformed so much about my life. And I guess my reflection would be this. The greater the depth of forgiveness, the greater the depth of love and honor given to Jesus. The greater you connect with what you would have been without him and how he forgives you and then gives you a new start, the greater it's in proportion to the love that you have for him now. It's worth pondering that this morning. If you feel distant from God, if you're questioning where your love is for God, think of what you were and what Jesus has done for you. So the first key to understanding Romans is the author Paul. hope you get that, that Um, He was a man whose life transformed by Jesus. But the second, uh, I guess, the star of the show, the hero of the story is Jesus himself. Now, remember that Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire at the time. It really was the center of the universe. It was the greatest city in the world, and it was home to the most powerful man in the world, the Caesar, whose official titles would be the Son of God whose birthday was announced as good news and who claimed the allegiance of every person in the empire who, who, who uh, for them to bow the knee and worship him. And so Paul is writing to this great city with this great Caesar and there's probably, a, a best guess would be, there's probably a 100 or so people that are believers, that are Christians in a city of about 1 million people. So it's everyone that's at south here, in a city like Leeds that was it and so you can imagine they feel would feel insecure they'd feel troubled that Paul's not actually even been to this church so he's wanting to encourage them and encourages them by comparing Caesar with the true king verse 3 regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Three things about Jesus. We've heard three things about Paul, three things about Jesus. One, he's fully human. Verse three, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. God's son, Jesus, was fully human. Uh, Sometimes that phrase is translated as to his human nature, not just his earthly life. Jesus comes to earth as a baby that grows up to be an adult, just like us. But not just that, Paul says that Jesus is secondly the one who fulfilled the promises of Scripture regarding his son who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. Jesus comes from a royal house far older than anything Rome could offer, that of King David, which existed a thousand years before. And this is really significant because God had promised King David that uh, from his family, God would produce an ultimate, final, universal king, the Christ. And David's own life, his role, his suffering and glory was actually a foreshadowing of this greater descendant. But not only that, but as you read the pages of the Old Testament leading into the New Testament, there are over 400 passages that prophesy or speak of the life that Jesus would have, including where he was born, how he was killed, how he would uh, connect people back to God. And so this is a man who was fully human, but he also fulfilled the promises of Scripture. And thirdly, he was fully divine, verse 4 says, and through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is not just fully human, but he's fully divine. He's God's son who rises from the dead. Now, Paul is doing this. He's underlying the sense that he's God's son, who dies but then rises from the grave, he is greater than anything the Caesar, who is the world's most powerful man, can throw at you. Death itself has been triumphed over by Jesus. And that Jesus is more than just human, but he is God himself. He is the Lord. He is God in the flesh, connecting people back to God. And my guess is that they would have read that and being thrilled at the the God they're worshipping compared to the oppressive rule of the Caesar that they would experience at a day-to-day level. Listen, if anyone ever asks you or asks me what happens when you became a Christian, and how do you know you are one, one of the things that I would say that when I became a Christian for the first time in my life, there was a deep sense of acceptance and a feeling of no longer being alone. I don't know if you can understand that, but everyone is alone deep down, even if they're surrounded by friends and family until they meet Jesus. And Jesus is the one, fully God, fully man, fulfilling the scriptures who rises from the grave to connect us back to God. How do we know one of the ways that we know that we're a Christian is that we sense that. We, we enter a relationship. We no longer feel alone. It's the most wonderful thing. So we've been introduced to Paul, and then we've been introduced to the hero, Jesus. Our final key uh, is understanding what's meant by the term, uh, the, or the terms gospel and righteousness, because they are terms that come up again and again through this letter. So let's read verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So what is the gospel that Paul is not ashamed of? Well, firstly, that word gospel is translated from the Greek word evangeloi, which means good herald. And so in the first century, what would typically happen is in a far-flung battlefield, an emperor who won a great victory, uh, which secured peace and established his authority, he would send heralds or evangeloi to announce, uh, to make a declaration of his victory, of his peace and his victory. So the gospel, is, it's an announcement. You imagine someone on a megaphone. It's someone announcing something to the world. And so the gospel isn't meant to be advice to be followed. It's news. It's good news about what has been done in and through Jesus. And that needs to be told through a megaphone to the whole world. So what's the announcement? Well, the gospel centers in on a person, not a concept. The gospel is a declaration about God's son Jesus, that he is our powerful, saving King. And his actions of dying and rising demand our honour and our allegiance. And so for Paul, he's excited about the gospel because it conveys this good news that impacts something very important to him. And that is his standing before God. Verse 17 says, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed righteousness means right standing think about what it is to be right in your relationships or in your family or at work you know with your friends if you're in right standing with your friends then it means that you don't have any debts you don't have any obligations the other person has nothing against you everything's good everything's good when you have right standing with someone now the righteousness of God refers to his righteous character God is perfectly good and holy. He's without fault, But our sin means that we don't have any righteousness of our own. But in Jesus, our standing before God is put right. Jesus's righteousness is given to us and we are now seen by God as holy and pure and perfectly good. And that's so important to understand. You're standing before God if you're in a church family that is split. Imagine two mission groups. One is for for non-Jews, for Gentiles, and one is for Jews. And they don't like each other very much, or they seem to be saying different things. Paul is saying that righteousness is received through faith and always only received by faith. Theologically, what's at stake is whether God's righteousness, so his our right standing before him, comes by way of doing the law, which the Jews, the Jewish Christians would have said, or by faith in Christ Jesus, which the Gentiles would have said. And so Paul is wanting to make it really clear, verse 17: for in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that, how does it come? It comes by faith from first to last just as it is written the righteous will live by faith so how do you get this righteousness you get it from faith from first to last paul is saying that righteousness is received through faith and only received by faith we do not become righteous by faith and then having to maintain our goodness but rather we because once we become christians we are forgiven but we're also given the righteousness of God. Everyone still with me so far? I wonder then, what do we do as Christians if everything is done for us? If by faith we are made right before God, what about living for God and obedience? Well, obedience follows being made right before God, not first. And that's why the 18th, uh, sorry, 16th century reformer Martin Luther said this, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. So we're saved by faith, we're made right before God. And if you truly understand that, then the life you live is different as a result in obedience. It's the obedience that comes from faith. And I wonder for you what steps of obedience God is calling you into today as you put your faith in Jesus. So let me summarize. Paul is the author. He's writing to a splintered church that's made up of these Jews and these Gentile Christians, but he's presenting Jesus as the hero. And the gospel is this great announcement of the saving grace found through believing in Jesus that gives us a righteousness that comes through faith a phrase that was repeated again and again and again. And it's that message that he wants to bring these two sort of divided parties in the church together so that they might live by faith and enjoy the goodness of God. So what do you do in response to what you've heard this morning? Is it that you need to reconnect with your passion for um, enjoying the relationship, this connection that God has brought to your life? Are there steps of obedience that God is calling you to that don't put into question your right standing before God, but flow out of that place? Or perhaps you're a new person to church, new person to faith, and today you're wanting to express what it is to be reconnected with God, and we cannot encourage you more to take those steps and to put your trust in our Lord Jesus.